my mind isn't there anymore. I'm not into into that. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. Today's quote is about listening to the Dhamma. It's a good quote. It's one of them that we actually memorize for our Dhamma exams. If you ever want to take the first level Pali exam, uh, first level Dhamma exams in Thailand, you have to memorize this. Panchime bhikkave anisangsaha dhamma savane. There are monks, these five benefits in listening to the dhamma. Katame pancha, which five? Asuttang sunati. What is not heard, one hears. One hears what one has not heard. You learn new things. Suttang Pariyodapeti. What has been heard becomes clear. Maybe you heard something and you didn't really understand it. You've learned things before and they weren't clear. They become clear. Kangkang Vittareti. One overcomes doubt. Maybe you heard something and you weren't sure about it. I doubt about it, but now it's explained in a new way or in more detail, and so the doubt goes away. Maybe something you heard, something was explained clearly, but you don't know if you agree with it. And so getting some more evidence or argument gives you confidence that it's true. Dipting Ujjung Karoti one's views are one makes one's view straight so one might have a misunderstanding of the dhamma that which one has misunderstood if one hears the buddha's teaching and comes to believe that the buddha taught nihilism and he taught us to uh, to, den to destroy everything, to denounce, to avoid, and that kind of thing. If you believe that the Buddha taught torture, to torture oneself, uh, in refining your view, because it's very easy to get a little bit off track and get it onto a path that is similar to the Dhamma, but misleading. Jitta masa pasidati. One's mind, the mind of that person becomes bright, pure, clear, devoted. Becomes calm. Pasidati probably just means becomes tranquil, becomes settled. Becomes luminous, just maybe also good. Maybe it becomes bright. The mind becomes radiant. Listening to the Dhamma. Listening to the Dhamma is a great catalyst for spiritual uh, progress. 
I've talked about this before, of course. When you're sitting listening to the Dhamma, the big, the big, one of the biggest, most obvious advantages is you're stuck. You can't get up and do what you want. You're forced to listen. You're forced to stay still. Further, you're constant because of the nature of the teaching. If it is Dhamma, you're forced to or you know, you're 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 constantly reminded about the path and the teaching directs you as you listen to be present to be mindful to cultivate wholesome qualities cultivate morality concentration wisdom constantly reminds you of these things so maybe a good question in corollary to this quote is what is the Dhamma? How do you know that you're listening to the Dhamma? That's a good question. Because we sometimes just take it for granted that if, if a monk is speaking or if a Buddhist teacher is speaking, then we're listening to the Dhamma. But we should be careful. Because if you're listening to something that is not the Dhamma, it can actually disturb you. It can, it can confuse you. And get you on the wrong path. When I was in uh, Mississauga recently, one of the monks, for some reason or another, was had his notebook open, his laptop computer open, um, playing a YouTube video of some Hindu guru. And it's really interesting. No, devout Buddhists should listen to this video. Maybe not devout Buddhists, sorry. Um, People who are well established in Buddhism should 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 watch this because it's very close. It's be very easy to mistake this for Buddhism. Maybe not. It, it's somewhat easy. It, it's very easy to be caught up in this. What ends up really being garbage, <laughs> being misled, not garbage, but. It's funny how you can you can watch it and listen and um, suddenly you know it sounds good. It's a charismatic teacher, and then suddenly like wait, that's not right. That's not Buddhism. That's not true. That's misleading. That's misguided. There's something about you can't let go. Oh, I don't know. He was really manipulating, really twisting things. Saying, uh, saying it was about desire. Uh, desire is life. You you can't stop living, so you can't stop desiring or something. Really, really twisted, and misled. So, the fact that it's dhamma is important. I mean, there is benefit to sitting patiently listening to anything. But if it's not dhamma, this is dangerous. And I think the the answer is we don't really know, and we don't really have a great um, test in modern times. I mean, you can go by the Buddhist words that if it's leading to renunciation, but how do you know if it's leading to give up the defilements? 
how does someone know and you, you the the really the truth is in this day and age we're in a bit of a we're in a bit of a dilemma or a bit of a quandary we're like the the, the cast away of shipwreck grasping at anything that seems to be seaworthy whether it turns out to be seaworthy whether it actually floats or not is often actually just chance. What if you were to find a Hindu guru before you found a Buddhist teacher and ended up on a teaching that was similar but not the same? Didn't actually lead to enlightenment. Not all teachings are the same. I think the only um, sort of tool that we have to keep ourselves and to direct ourselves and to be sure that we're headed in the right direction is our own introspection. The Buddha said to, to succeed you need to reflect upon what you do. Don't just charge ahead. Many times or several times the Buddha said reflect. Don't just follow blindly. The question from time to time is this is this right? Is this good? I always caution students not to question whether they're 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 improving through the practice. I think that's difficult, problematic. Because when you start to question, am I improving? Well what are you what are you using as as your frame of reference now? Because everything is up and down, your your moods will change. And if you go by now, it might be worse than you were yesterday. And if you're worse than if you're worse than worse today than you were yesterday, well, does that mean that what you're doing is wrong? I mean, not necessarily, because it's very complicated. So if you if you if you look now, at, if you look at your progress on a day that things are good, you'll be confident. You'll say, oh, look at me progressing. And then the next day it gets worse. And you think, oh, no, this practice is useless. It's very um, stressful to focus on results in this way. So if you want to know that what you are practicing and what you are following is right, you really have to look at the nature of the act and that alone, and the nature of the, the, the state, the nature of the teaching. Is it pure? When we meditate, are our minds pure? Don't worry about the results. Look at the cause. Is the cause pure? Because that's the nature of, I mean, that's, that's I think, um, something you can rely upon without any doubt that a good cause leads to a good result. You plant a seed, it bears similar fruit to the seed. You do a good deed, it bears good fruit. So look at the deeds, look at the acts, look at the states. And likewise, look at the teachings, look at the nature of the teachings. When you listen to the Dhamma, you should be somewhat skeptical. 
We shouldn't just take everything for granted. But when you hear the when you hear the teaching that is pure, and you follow those teachings not because of the results that are going to come, but because of the purity of the teachings. The results will be pure. I think that's much more sustainable. Anyway, there's some thoughts on Dhamma. The main gist here is listening to the Dhamma is good. It's great that we have this opportunity to spread the Dhamma on the internet. So, do a little bit of teaching every day. Do a little bit of back and forth answering questions every day. So we have some questions today. Mostly yellow. These are from people who are not meditating with us. Let's look at this Jitta V person. Okay, Jitta V is doing meditation with us. That's good. See, this is what this is the benefit of the one benefit of the site is that we can focus our efforts and our community on meditation. So people who are not meditating, I mean, so that we don't get off track and, and start discussing and, and focusing on topics of non that aren't related to meditation. Fortunately, here's a question that's not at all related to meditation. Why can't monks wear watches but can have clocks? I think I'm just going to skip that question. It's not really that much of an important question. Is in Theravada Buddhism, do you believe the bodhisattvas or heavenly beings or even beings from the hell realms can either help or hurt you? Is karma the only cause and effect or can other beings affect your life? Karma is very complicated, and karma isn't everything. Karma is, again, this cause and effect, that if you do something bad, any fruit that it will have will be bad. That's all it says. If you do something good, any fruit that it will have will be good. Good things have good results. Bad things have bad results. That's really all it says. To find out what results it has is far too complicated for anyone on earth to figure out. So heavenly beings, hell beings, human beings, they can all do, they can all affect, they can all, um, their actions have consequences, not just for themselves, but for other beings. It's not that only our karma causes us suffering, it's not it. It's just that our karma, good, our good karma will bring us happiness, our bad karma will bring us suffering. Doesn't mean that other people... Now, there's a provider, other people's, other people's actions cannot actually cause us suffering because it's up to our minds and our reactions to do that. But it certainly can physically harm us and force us to be confronted by unwholesomeness. Now, it's usually, if there's usually a connection 
like other people doing bad things to us is usually related to us having some kind of negative connection with that person and if someone is if we're mean to someone then it's quite likely that they're going to be mean back to us so there you go it's actually from our own original karma that we're getting we're getting um, we're being harmed in, in response why all these questions about monks uh -oh. I mean, I lost it all. would support for neuroenhancement to achieve enlightened states be a positive force would you support using such a device to potentially achieve deeper levels of understanding? Yeah, maybe. But you you really don't understand how, how wisdom works. Wisdom is not something you can induce. Wisdom isn't physical. You can't just manufacture wisdom. Wisdom only comes from seeing. So what, it, what these things can do is they can calm the mind. I'm, I wouldn't personally rely on them because the world is not physical. The universe is not physical. Anytime you try to use the physical to affect the mind, you, you are thereby creating mental states, usually mental states of laziness, mental states of greed, mental states of... of um, of delusion and and um, you know, trying to find a shortcut, the misunderstanding about reality. So there's a lot of unwholesomeness involved with trying to fix things for using physical means. So no, I no, I, I'd be skeptical about anything. You know, you say it makes your mind. I mean, you to to think that it could lead to enlightenment is absurd. But even to think that these states could calm the mind and thereby be a support for, for enlightenment is still to uh, ignore the fact that true calm has to come and true enlightenment has to come from the mind and that all you're doing is um, skipping or, or um, trying to bypass the necessary mental development of effort and exertion and mental fortitude and rectitude and all that, all the good mental qualities that you're just bypassing with out of laziness, really. You're too lazy to actually do the work. And that's a problem because that mind state that says, let's take a shortcut, it's not a good mind state. So there's no way around it because of you're hurting yourself by being lazy. So to say that somehow these things could help is misunderstanding the nature of enlightenment. It's not physical. Why do monks have, again, these questions, why do monks have to use the toilet sitting and not standing? It's not really that important of a question. If you ever become a monk, we'll talk about it. 
I have a hard time breathing through my stomach. I feel like after a while I'm not breathing enough air and I have to breathe through my chest. It can get very uncomfortable. Discomfort is important. I mean, there's a lot of tension in the body. That's natural. But we're trying to see these sorts of things. A lot of it has to do with forcing the breath. But regardless of what it has to do with, the, the, the feeling of tension that you have and discomfort is important. These are the kind of situations we want to be faced with, as we want to learn how to let go. It's only uncomfortable if you react to it. When you feel uncomfortable, you should just say to yourself, uncomfortable. We're trying to put ourselves in an uncomfortable position. Not purposely hurt ourselves, but we're trying to um, situate ourselves in a way that, that, that opens us up to these uncomfortable experiences naturally. Not, not inducing them, not torturing ourselves, but leaving ourselves open to them. And so when they come, you should be try to be patient with them, learn to let go of them. That's what it's all about, about learning to be, to be flexible. So if the breath is coming shallow and not trying to force it, learning the, the stress that comes from forcing, becoming patient so that you don't try to force things. I also have a hard time, time focusing on the pressure of my stomach. Picture my stomach rising or falling always comes up and I don't know how to just watch. Yeah, of course, this is the, this is the point. We don't know how to just watch. We, we have to force and we have to control and we, 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 our mind plays tricks on us, naturally conjuring up these images. I mean, that's obviously not what the instruction is, and yet the mind interprets it that way because the mind is unable to, as you say, be unable to be aware. You want to focus, you want, you want to be with the stomach, but you can't, and that's frustrating. But that's the nature of reality. This is very much the practice that we're doing learning how to ex accept and not exactly accept but let go of our expectations and become aware of things simply as they are rather than as we wish they were so you, you if you, you the difficulty in focusing and it's not a sign that you're doing something wrong it's a part of it's it's a sign of the nature of reality, that it's uncontrollable, unpredictable. And so this cultivates flexibility, patience, contentment, sort of detachment in the sense of not being attached to expectations. If things are like this, okay, they're like this. If they're like that, okay, they're like that. Not they must be like this and they can't be like that this need to control, this need for, you know, need to, to stay with it. I mean, we start by focusing on the stomach, but it's not to say that all good practice is only when your mind is focused on one thing. That's not the way it is. You're, it's expected that you'll be disturbed, that you'll be disrupted, that you'll be interrupted by many different things. So don't expect that you should always be able to follow the stomach. When you can't, there's something else taking your attention. Focus on that. If you see a picture of the stomach, then you would focus on seeing, seeing, 
It's the nature of the mind. It's always going to trick you and take you away and pull you hither and thither. What is the Buddhist stance on the paranormal? It seems contradictory to suggest that entities do not exist. Well, also, well, of course, we, we believe we can be born a ghost, so then ghosts do exist. Do they inhabit the earth or part of another realm? I think the understanding is they are, I mean, there's no earth, right? There's no realm, but it's possible. But there are times where human beings come in contact with ghosts. It's rare. It's usually reserved for those who have strong, powerful minds that are able to experience and interact with such beings of a very different nature. But it does happen. It is said to happen. I'm not going to try to convince you. I think you'd have to experience such a thing yourself to really believe it. But there is a sense, there is a, a claim that many different kinds of beings exist. And I don't think that's a really a claim that we should really worry about or doubt about. It's not it's not really a doctrinal claim. It's just saying there are not exactly because it's just saying there are many different just like there are many different human beings. Well all we're saying is it goes beyond that. You know, there are much more extreme versions in, in many different directions. Ghosts have a lot of, of attachment. So if you have lots of attachment extreme attachment you can be born beyond human human attachment you'll be born as a ghost pining away lacking and wanting if you have lots of anger you can be born in such intense anger beyond human anger the anger of hell the the, the suffering of hell if you have great greatness about your goodness if you're such, if you're good beyond human goodness and be born in divine goodness as an angel, that kind of thing. But I wouldn't worry too much about whether they exist or not. Was Bardo something the Buddha talked about? No, Bardo is a Tibetan word. The Buddha didn't speak Tibetan, or he didn't teach in Tibetan, not in our texts anyway. Uh, maybe that's that's flippant. Um, the idea of the bardo is that there's something in between rebirths. I mean, there's nothing in between. The antarabhava is what it's called. There is no antarabhava. It's, it's a bhava. You know, if you die and you're floating around as a spirit, well, that's an existence. It's not between existences. It is existence. Existence is continuous. Death is just a concept. Reality is the mind arising and ceasing. Does Amtrak make a regular scheduled stop anywhere near the monastery? Good question. Well, we're in Hamilton, so you can look it up, Hamilton, Ontario. I would think buses are always easier, but there is a, you know, Toronto. At the very least, you can take a bus to Toronto, or a train to Toronto. But I think you might be able to take a train to Hamilton. I'm not actually sure. Oops, I guess I should check comments. Someone said the audio volume is way too low. Test, test. Why is it test?
right? Yeah, if you're listening on the audio, it's been way too low, and that's because I forgot to do this. Test, test. No, that's not it. Monitor. Yeah, that's it. I think I'll just switch this over to this. My apologies. The audio recording is going to be way too quiet until now. It'll be louder. But the, the YouTube video should be okay. These things go. Is it better to do formal meditation in a specific time of the day? No. You know, do it once or twice a day. Twice a day is great. What times of the day are best for meditation? I mean, it's kind of an odd question. It's like, what times is it proper to make to better yourself? It's always good to better yourself. There's no, you know, it has nothing to do with time of day. If you can do, the more you can do, the better. I mean, you could argue that there are certain schedule schedules that are more uh, beneficial than others. Like it's probably beneficial to do some in the morning and some in the evening. That's a general, but you know, much more important, I think, is well, what what are you capable of? What does your schedule allow for? If it allows for some in the morning and some in the evening, that's great. That's a very common format for people working during the day. Is the desire to have children an attachment? Yes. I mean, these are just words, but desire and attachment are, you know, desire need not be attachment because attachment can be thought of as an extreme form of desire. If you just think, hmm, I want to have kids, it's just a one-off thought. It's not really attachment. But if you desire to have kids so much, it can become an attachment. It becomes an obsession, and therefore you're attached to it. But technically speaking, desire and attachment are actually just desire. Attachment is just a strong form of desire. So I don't know if that is interesting to you. But but you can't get off the hook and say desire for children isn't really a, isn't really desire. It is. It's it's not not positive. I mean, it's not positive in the sense that it's going to get you stuck in samsara. Obviously, you'll have kids. It's a real stuck. Is it better to do formal meditation at a specific time of the day? Are we asking this again? 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. You know, I mean, if you space it out, you could argue that that's better because then it's more consistent, it's more continuous. If you just meditate in the afternoon, twice in the afternoon, well, then you got all these hours where you're not doing formal meditation. So morning and evening are therefore good because it's spaced out. And it, it allows for more, more of a continuous more of a um, all-encompassing practice. Is it okay to think of dreams and traveling outside of the body as a means towards enlightenment? No, you should read my booklet on how to meditate. That's how you become enlightened in our tradition. The Buddha told that monks should speak the local language. Does that really include saying cuss words? I don't know about these questions. 
guess they're Buddhist. It's a Buddhist question. I don't know. I'm not convinced about that question. What I mean is, should I pay attention to them, keep a journal, etc.? No, I wouldn't worry about dreams or astral travel. Focus on the present moment. Present moment. Those are just concepts. All the things that you'd put in your dreams would, well, would mainly be concepts. Focus only on the realities, the states of mind and physical experiences. This question I have already answered above. But if you missed my answer, let's just re repeat. Neuroenhancement to achieve enlightened states be a positive force. Right. Um, and I've answered this. Artificial, in brief, artificial, not good. Artificial, not good because you're being, um, you're cultivating laziness and, and um, a sort of a cheater's mind. And that mind state is not wholesome, it's not beneficial. There's no escaping the necessity to cultivate to, to, to cultivate wholesomeness in the mind. All you're doing is avoiding that. You're you're making allowance for your your um, lack of commitment, lack of, of mental fortitude. So it's going to be problematic if you try to find shortcuts in any way. What do you mean by purity? Um, in general, I don't know when I was using the word purity, but in general, purity means free from defilement. So if your mind is pure, if your mind is pure, it means you see something as it is. Like when you watch the stomach and you say rising, if you're really aware of it as rising, your mind is pure. There's no greed, no anger, no delusion, no judgment, no reaction. It is what it is. When you feel pain and you say pain and you're able to experience it just as pain, that's purity. Eventually, when you commit to this and you practice regularly this sort of teaching your mind becomes naturally pure and becomes less inclined to, to cling to judge to react that's also purity but it's this ability to see things as they are without judgment without reaction What do you think of some kid monks who literally ordain immediately without any years of practice? I mean, in and of itself, kid monks aren't bad. You don't you don't ordain because you've practiced a lot, not necessarily. Although nowadays that's true. Nowadays we do try to get people to practice first because otherwise it's just often a waste of people ordain for the wrong reasons. But but kids, you know. It is possible for kids to, after they ordain, begin to practice. And I guess the problem is you ordain people with no intention of teaching them to practice. When these kids are ordained, there's no intention for them to become enlightened. There's an intention for them to study, maybe, for them to 
perpetuate the religion, the institutional religion. But if a kid ordains and, and is taught meditation, well, that's good. I think that's a great way to grow up. Nowadays, even in Buddhist countries, they're making laws so that the kids have that kids have to go to school. So even novices are going to public school and learning all sorts of worldly things, which you know, arguably is okay, but it's not really what monks should do. So there's a problem there. There's a bit of a conflict there. And you think, well, you should do one first and then the other. If you're going to learn all those worldly things like math and geography and history, well, go and do it first and then become a monk later. Or just don't do it at all. But, but modern society dictates that they need, they, they require kids to have this secular education. So probably should get that first. There are certain secular things that are useful, but If you're taking history and mathematics. Mathematics, you could argue, useful for building, for example. It's a bit of a stretch. Where does scientific thought fit in with Buddhist tradition? It often focuses only on the physical and ignores the spiritual. Well, that's not scientific thought. That's materialist. The material sciences, they're called. The material sciences are more or less stuck in in a, a physicalist view of the universe, and um, it's just a paradigm. So yeah, there's a problem there, but it's not the scientific. The scientific method is fine, although even the scientific method is yes still still focused on the impersonal and the requirement for reproduction um, proof through reproduction which is i'm not criticizing that but it can never be proof you can't actually prove anything in science because there's nothing about data that implies proof. It, it it implies it's evidence. So it it leads to conjecture. You know, if you do the same thing and it, and it gives the same results a thousand times, you cultivate a theory that that's the way things work. It, it it's always going to be like that. But you don't have proof. There are certain things that you can prove through meditation, very limited things anyway. I mean, you can prove the existence and the, the, the nature of existence as being experiences that arise and cease. So, I mean, maybe proof is a bit of a bad word, but you can, there are certain things that you know for sure from a first-person basis, I mean, simple things. You know that seeing is seeing. You know that hearing is hearing. So it's a different sort of science because you don't quite need evidence. Or there are certain things that you don't need evidence for. But on the other hand, on the other hand, enlightenment itself is very, very much follows the the scientific process. You 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 cultivate this awareness of things as they are enough again and again 
Uh, and eventually the mind becomes convinced only through evidence, not through proof. But it becomes convinced through the evidence of seeing things arising and ceasing, of seeing impermanent suffering and non-self again and again, that it finally comes to the conclusion through conjecture, through extrapolation, that all of these things are impermanent suffering and non-self. All things must be. And it lets go. So the mind decides to treat the universe as though it were completely full of impermanent suffering and non-self things because that's all that it sees. Recently spent many months without practicing because meditation is so tough. How can I have consistency in my practice and not give it up? Well, take heart because if it's if it's tough, that's a sign that you're doing it properly. That's a sign that there's you're benefiting from it. You know, anything that challenges you, anything that creates conflict, is changing things. Is conflict is is the catalyst for change. If things are easy, that's when you stagnate. Things are comfortable. If it's not challenging you, then then you're not really benefiting. You should never. You shouldn't be concerned about getting to a state where meditation is easy. I mean, eventually that will come, and it comes through being enlightened. But an enlightened being is still subject to the inconstancy of things. It doesn't. The meditation doesn't get easier per se. One just becomes less subject to the uh, to to reactions to the the vicissitudes and to the challenges, to the chaos. So how would you deal with this? I mean, you deal with your anger, the anger base, which is the disliking, the aversion to meditation. Meditate on that. It's really the best. Look at why you don't want to meditate. Look at, look at the fact that you don't like to meditate, don't want to meditate. Be mindful of that. Say to yourself, disliking, disliking, or something. Any advice on being around people who engage in idle chatter? Skillful ways to engage with them. Well, that's actually, you know, it's a fairly simple one, is you just be mindful, hearing, hearing. Let them talk and just meditate on it. And, I mean, it's, it's challenging to be able to do that. But when you can remember, you'll feel a lot better. Try to be mindful in everything you do. Whenever you use it, you'll feel better. You'll feel pure. Your mind will feel clearer. Do you think it is possible that one day artificial intelligence could be a real being with consciousness? I mean, do I think physical, physical um, mimicry of consciousness could somehow magically, through no law of cause and effect, become actual consciousness? I mean, it's like, like, could these words on this page ever magically become a person saying these words? No, no. Artificial intelligence, it's not intelligent. Artificial intelligence is, is a, a mimicry of it by humans. Humans have 
created a way to make it look like something is intelligent, make it appear that something is intelligent. It's just a mimicry. It's not. You know, it's like an echo. If you hear, if you if you call out and you get an echo, you say, "Hey, who's over there?" There's no one over there. It was your own voice. But the but the cliffs, the the canyon is talking. Yeah? Is it possible that through through shouting at a canyon enough, it eventually gains consciousness and starts talking back? And that and that's basically what what that question is. It's, it's, a, it's not a bad question, it's a question that people ask, but it's completely through a misunderstanding of consciousness and intelligence, I think. Is it fair to say that Buddhism is a, is a philosophy? I don't know, I mean, it's just a word. Just a word. Mainly, mainly the questions we're trying, we're aiming for here are meditative questions, which we've gotten quite a few, I think, and hopefully that's been a benefit. I'm not so much interested in answering other questions. All this wondering, you have to be mindful, wondering, wondering, curious, curious. You'll feel better if you do. Mind will loosen up. Will settle down. Okay, anyway, enough for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. We're still in the process of moving. Robin's here with me. I'm not going to turn the camera, but she's right here. Anyway. So we'll try to be on again tomorrow night. Thank you all for tuning in. Wishing you all the best.